Hello, 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 and happy Saturday, indeed. Happy Saturday. Welcome into episode number 56 of the Sports Kiki Podcast. My name is Alex Reamer, and you can find the show wherever you can find your favorite OutSports podcasts. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. It's all there. Um, lots of good stuff this week on OutSports.com, as usual. I wrote up my interview with Chance Wheeler, only fan star. I should say Hunter Dalton, who you heard on the show last week. I'm glad people enjoyed that. Um, I I say all the more power to you. You know, I think we should have a more sex positive society. I think it's an amazing accomplishment that Chance or anybody can make a living off OnlyFans because as much as it's exploded in popularity over the last year. The average OnlyFans creator still only takes home about $180 a month. So for somebody like Chance to say they can do that full time is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. And I was especially fascinated and interested to hear about how participating in OnlyFans and starting the page, participating in OnlyFans, I make it sound like it's some academic project, but uh, how opening an OnlyFans account in a page can, uh, uh, Chance thinks really reconnected him to the gay community in a lot of ways and opened up his world in the gay community, showing that, yeah, the world is larger than just my small hometown or home area in rural Virginia. So uh, that's cool. That's a cool story. And I think that COVID has brought a lot of bad societal and cultural trends, but opening up the world like that, and that is a positive to this digital world we now live in, the world can seem bigger than it once was. And it is bigger than it once was. And someone like Chance is traveling, doing it safely, but meeting more people, building connections, and who knows what could come from his OnlyFans page down the line. Because one of the things I also hope you took away from that interview is that it's not just, okay, let me go nude and you know, take some pics. It's a little more complicated than that. There's an art to it. There's a persona he has. So I'm very fascinated about all of that kind of work. So it was great to talk to Chance, or I should say Hunter Dalton, on the show last week. Uh, this week, we're bringing back an old favorite. Ken Schultz is a contributor to OutSports. He was a guest on one of our highest listened to podcast episodes last summer we did a show about the surge in athlete activism surrounding the george floyd uh death and the police brutality protests uh, protests against police brutality across the country uh ken and i talked a lot about that he wrote a story about natasha cloud and her ascendance in the athlete advocacy realm and we actually had natasha on the show a few weeks ago as you know so great to get ken back hopefully the listeners follow to talk about a few media topics ken wrote for us Uh, earlier this year about the dearth of LGBTQ broadcasters in sports. Now I say broadcasters, not sports writers, not necessarily even analysts, not sideline reporters, but broadcasters, play-by-play people. There's a dearth of them. And by dearth, I mean there are none. I mean, to our knowledge, and we all brainstormed before Ken wrote the piece and reported out the piece, there are no out LGBTQ play-by-play people in the major male professional sports. None. Uh, so there's a problem there. Why is that? I talked to Ken about that. Ken's also a huge baseball fan. He hosts a baseball podcast for us. So we talk about the Mickey Callaway sexual harassment story, the Jared Porter sexual harassment story, and the waves of... Uh, And baseball seeming to still be in this atavistic, antiquated culture 
Terry Francona made comments this week, kind of defending, uh, you know, Mickey Callaway and not, you know, defending their response to it, which certainly seems like people within the Cleveland organization knew what he was doing as pitching coach. So pretty gross week for baseball, another bad week for baseball. So I talked to Ken about Major League Baseball. Is this sport actually moving forward or is it still stuck in a previous time? So we do all that. And I also talked to Ken about the big journalism and media debate that took place across the Twitter sphere this week, the debate over unpaid internships. So this got started when Jane Slater of NFL Media sent out a tweet advertising an unpaid internship opportunity. She got a lot of backlash for that. A lot of people saying, why are you advertising an unpaid opportunity? We shouldn't be beyond that. So Jane defended herself in a series of tweets this week. One of them really struck a nerve with me and many others, and this is what it said. For future journalists, your first few years feel unpaid. I made 16500 Let's try again. I made 16.5K my first two years and worked harder than I've ever worked. There is a reason not everyone makes it in this business. I don't have time for those of you who don't understand grind. Peace symbol. Peace. Okay. Don't have time for those of you who don't understand grind. Peace. So I love that, first of all, that this idea that if you can't take an unpaid internship, you're not grinding. And it's worth mentioning that everybody who defended the quote-unquote grind that Jane Slater is representing was white. I did not see this week on my Twitter timeline any reporter of color defending the grind or anybody who actually did have to grind defend the grind. Those who were defending the grind were doing the grind as kind of just an activity. You know, it's just a fun thing to do. I'm in my early 20s, so I'm going to grind. And if I ever really need help, I'm going to get bailed out. Because Jan Slater has said, and people dug up these quotes, of course, in the age of social media, everything you say can and will be used against you. Jane Slater said that her grandfather was supporting her emotionally and financially, and he's her hero because of that, and that's great. But that tells you that Jan Slater had a safety net. I had a safety net, and it helped me immensely. That's the thing. Nobody is saying that if you can take an unpaid internship, you're not working hard. Nobody is saying that if you take an unpaid internship, these opportunities get handed to you. Nobody's saying that. But it is unequivocally easier to succeed if you can take unpaid internships and on top of that, apply yourself fully to them. I had an unpaid job writing for a semi-obscure website in Boston, and I wrote all the time for them. Mornings, afternoons, nights, late nights, whatever it was. If a story broke, I made sure I got a post up. I made sure I impressed them. If I was also stocking shelves at Target for 30 hours a week, I would not have had the bandwidth to do that. So the ability to take unpaid internships just puts you so much ahead. And when that's the norm for an industry, it obviously winnows out the hiring pool to only be of with privileged people. And that's a problem we see in media all the time. Journalism is one of the least diverse professions in this country. In this country, racial and ethnic minorities comprise almost 40% of the U.S. population. They make up less than 17% of newsroom staff at print and online outlets. And sports media is just as bad. 
78% of all editorial positions are filled by white people. The gender disparity is even more stark. And it's especially bad in sports because these are leagues where the racial composition on the field does not mirror the racial composition in the front offices. It does not mirror the racial composition in the press boxes. The NBA is nearly 80% black. The NFL is 74% players of color. Major League Baseball is about 40% players of color. And what's what are the numbers? In the NFL, there are three black head coaches. NFL and NBA each have just five black general managers. Of the three major sports league, only one principal owners is black, Michael Jordan. So black and brown players are not represented in the coaching ranks. They're not represented in the front offices. They're not represented in the press. And if a good newsroom is supposed to reflect the community or the people it's covering, then in that aspect, sports departments fail miserably. They fail miserably because they don't reflect the people they're covering. And unpaid internships serve as a reason for that. It creates a barrier to entry. So to me, it's all pretty simple to see. But the big debate happened on sports media Twitter this week, which is as bad of a place as it sounds. Don't go there. So coming up on the other side, we do have Ken Schultz, who also is a stand-up comic, another industry where you're expected to work for free or very little while you're trying to make it. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I enjoyed participating in it. That's coming up on the other side. So as I was saying in the opening of the show, uh, we are, I'm always thankful for the listeners we have for the podcast each week, but one of our most listened to episodes remains the one that Ken Schultz was on from this past summer when we talked about the social justice movements in sports, you know, two white guys dishing on that, people enjoyed it. <laughs> so um, Ken Schultz from OutSports is back on the podcast today. Ken, how are you? Anytime there are two white guys dishing, I will be there, Alex. I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Doing well. We're recording this so that people know early Friday evening before Rue, I have my cocktail. (laughs) So I don't know how responsible I can be held for anything I say during this interview. So you can Uh, even. Who's your favorite so far before we get into this? I like Gottnick. Gottnick, yes. Yes. Good call. Yeah, Gottnick is is kind of awesome in all ways. I, I lean toward. Team Olivia Lux. Okay, I see that. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, I feel I, that. I kind of dislike the general upbeatness so far. Although I think I'm in agreement. I forget which queen said it, but yeah, there is kind of a hidden, a hidden assassin underneath there somewhere. I think, but uh, but yeah, she is fun. I think, and and she's just kind of every interview just makes me smile that she's on. So. I am going to be honest. I am kind of a faux drag race fan. Like I watch almost every Friday night, but I'm not necessarily always paying attention. And it's a relatively new thing for me. So I am, it is yeah. a little fraudulent when I do talk drag race, but thank you for I, I'm, indulging yeah. me. I, I, honestly, I'm kind of big same. Like I, okay. I didn't watch it regularly until lockdown last year right. uh, because it usually premieres at a time where spring training also was going on. And I'm sorry when it comes to drag race versus baseball, Sometimes I'm a bad gay. So, yeah. Got to kill that heteronormativity from you, Ken. (laughs) As, as, As much as I can. I'm trying. The nails are painted right now. That's the best I can give you. Really? What color? Uh, they're painted, uh, actually a kind of midnight blue. That's 
I got a random Amazon package in the mail yesterday really? from my sister saying, yeah, baseball season started, so here's Cubby Blue nail polish. And I was Good like, for you. Gore. Cute. Yeah. You did it yourself? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it means it's entirely amateurish, but uh, I mean, who else am I supposed to impress in my own apartment at this point? So. Uh, you know, right. Or you could do it for the gram, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but that's, wow, painted nails. I need to, this summer, painted nails or dyed hair, something. I've had the same look oh. like my whole life, Ken. I need mm-hmm. to switch things up. Yeah. I, I am much the same way. And yeah, I recommend nails as kind of a gateway. Cause it's a gateway, it's yeah. It's something that, yeah, something you can eventually kind of wash off with, with polish remover and you also, it doesn't involve pain, and that's that's an ideal for me. So, <laughs> so let's. Uh, speaking of pain, I thought it was painful this week. <laughs> How do you like that? How do you like that transition? Uh, Professional segue, sir. Painful this week. I know you have thoughts on this. To talk the unpaid internship debate in sports media. Um, let me just start here. As someone working in sports media and trying to work in sports media, as we all are. What are your thoughts with, with the general unpaid internship debate uh, when you have lots of, interestingly enough, it seems like only white NFL reporters really defending <laughs> the honor of an unpaid internship. What are your thoughts on this whole debate this week? Of, of course. And the people who defend it are always the ones who end up making it professionally in the end. They, they look back and go, well, of yeah. course, this is the path you're supposed to take because it landed me here. So if you don't get here, that means you can't suck it up the way I can. I mean, this is, Unpaid labor is kind of most of my life between, you know, writing sports for out sports or, you know, doing stand up comedy. And we pay you. I mean, you, you, you know, we don't get paid much, but, you know, it's right, not free, right. right? You are getting but, contributors do get paid, right? You're yeah. not. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't mean, okay. yeah, I didn't mean okay. to imply out sports is doing the unpaid, but in order to get there, <laughs> right? I no, right, had right, right. You start with with a baseball prospectus team site, which was unpaid for the first couple of years. And I was writing because, you know, I like writing about baseball and I have some free time. And one of those articles is one I submitted to Dawn Ennis as my sports audition and she picked up on it. So an unpaid thing ended up getting me this slightly paid gig. So, (laughs) you know, I could be one of those reporters saying, yeah, this is how you're supposed to do it, but it's really not. I mean, Unpaid, any unpaid internships or unpaid gigs, because believe me, the, the comedy industry is founded entirely on working for yeah, free. Yeah, right. And it, it's all taking advantage of people who have a passion and, in many cases, a focus in life, but because it, they're in industries where lots of people have that passion and focus, it's, it's kind of forcing them to say, okay, how badly do you want to do this? Because, right. it, you know, it's it's the thing in terms of whatever, whatever your industry is, sports writing, performing, arts, theater, any kind. It's the thing you've been training years and in many cases, decades and sometimes your entire life for. And once you and but once you get into it, you realize, OK, all this training is great. It's still not going to allow me to pay my rent. So it's like life and America saying to you, OK. This is what you're skilled in. This is what you're trained in. But how about you do this very dull, unskilled day work to actually earn the money and then spend the rest of your time pursuing this other full-time gig that's right. not actually going to pay you? So it's, it, again, a test of do you want to keep doing this? And, I mean, so far the answer is yes, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. 
So well, so I'm curious. So I didn't know that you were doing stuff for Baseball Prospectus before us fan sites. So unpaid. Um, why did why did you do that? Because you felt like you uh, had- that was yeah, that was kind of just a lark. That one of my uh, Cub fan friends noticed this BP's old site called BP Wrigleyville. Yeah, uh, just put out a hey, submit if you want to write for us kind of thing. Yeah, and it, it was really just kind of a yeah. I mean, I've I've dabbled in sports writing before and obviously I have baseball thoughts and especially cub thoughts. So I sent them a couple samples that I'd written for uh, this audition for another site and they thought they were good enough and said, yeah, we'll bring you on board. The thing is, this is not a paid gig. And it was like, you know, at the time I had a day job, I was doing standups and I was like, you know, this can be just a hobby. Sure. That's fine. Uh, And that's why I was like, sure, yeah, I can I can get on board with doing this for, for no money at all. But if, you know, I wanted it to be anything more than a hobby at that point, I don't know what my direction would have been after being told, you know, that you won't get paid for contributing a couple times a week for this. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it, 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 I, I think I think the way you put it is good that it like forces it's it's like this like test of your commitment when it really shouldn't be that way. You know, yeah, like, I mean. Every one of these industries has enough tests of the commitment as it is. I mean, it, it, everything is super cutthroat. Nobody knows, you know, what the path is supposed to be until you've actually succeeded on that path. And you know, once you add in the fact that you don't make any actual money into it, like right. that in a more just society should be the breaking point. But so, it's not because we're not a just society. Yeah, so so tell me about stand up too. I mean, so so that's like unpaid work is uh, the Norman stand up like 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 how does yeah. like so like when you're starting out open mic nights obviously are unpaid, right? right. So and, and yeah. And open mic nights should should be unpaid because that's both where when you're just starting out that's where you learn how to do it and it's also once you know your stuff that's where you go to try or try out your new jokes and see if they're going to work or not. So I get that. That's all good, but uh, the step above, and especially oh. this, especially applies to scenes, any scene, big city scene like New York or Boston okay. or Chicago or L.A. Even the step above, where you have guys who are getting stage time on regular shows every night, most of those are gigs and bars where you're essentially working for drink tickets. Right, right. And you're hoping that somebody who's you know important is in the crowd or somebody who is above you on the bill can maybe put in a recommendation for you to take another step up. But it's all just about like the currency is stage time and stand up in most of these gigs. And it's not until you get at the level where maybe you luck out and you open for uh, a comic who's touring or you get into some clubs in the road where you start getting paid like even a minimal amount for this. Well, right. And I mean, exposure bucks, right? I mean, I heard that phrase a million times growing up. Exposure bucks. I mean, comedy and sports media, I think, are similar in a lot of that aspect. And like my thing I always say is, and, you know, like, let's say that you are from a a well-to-do family and you don't have to worry about making ends meet. And guess what? You could spend all day preparing and rehearsing for your free comedy act that you're doing at the bar that Friday night, right? Like that can be what you do for the day. And obviously you're probably going to have a better show if that's all you can think about. But like, you know, if you're also stocking shelves at Target for X amount of hours a week to make ends meet on top of working another job on top of then 
going to stand up on a Friday night, Saturday night to test out your material, like, that's just much harder than if you don't have to do any of that other shit to make ends meet. (laughs) And that's why I will never understand the Jane Slaters and others who, like, it doesn't mean you didn't work hard if you had an unpaid internship and could take those internships. I worked hard, but I also recognize that the ability to do that and do that comfortably like is a point of privilege and puts you, it's just easier when you have something to fall back on. Right. Right. And you realize in stand up, there are a fair number of people, a fair number of comics who are, you know, trust fund kids or kids who come from some kind of wealthy background who can afford, you know, an apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn and spend most of their days just kind of sitting around and, you know, being trust funds in Brooklyn and then going out at night to bars and telling you how miserable they are. It's, <laughs> it's, the the stand-up yeah, mecca. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's the comedy, it's the career goal that we all hope to achieve. Just but, to be miserable in, Williams, in Williamsburg. I like it. Yeah. I, I, I wish I could remember whose line this is, though. It's, it's another comic, and it, it's a great one. But uh, for most work comics who want to you find work on on these unpaid bar shows you realize that essentially even whatever training whatever education you had essentially you majored in dog walking because that's what you do during the day and you spend most of your time dog walking moving temping whatever and many of these and especially jobs like moving you exhaust yourself over the course of eight hours and then you have to go out to bars and try to make rooms of strangers laugh right you're not feeling very funny you no, know, no. And at the end and that, yeah, it's, it's just much harder. It's just much harder when you have to worry about all the other stuff. And I would also say before we move on that, like, you know, you saw a lot of these tweets, Jane Slater to go back to her, had it, you know, I worked, uh, two unpaid internships in college plus a job and, you know, it was the grind and I loved it. People who romanticized the grind did it as kind <laughs> of, uh, like just, a just a thing to do. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I, I didn't see anybody who actually had to depend on the grind to put food on the table and stay in school and keep a roof over the head that they, they were not romanticizing that the people who, romant- who romanticize their days as a poor grinding college student are the people who at the end of the day, it was all kind of make believe. And if they didn't have it that month, then they could get bailed out. And I think it was always interesting to see the kind of people who romanticize their young days of poverty and those who don't because the ones <laughs> who romanticize it again, it was kind of all just like make believe, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And yeah. to your point, you only hear, again, going back to what I said at the top of the discussion, you only hear the people romanticizing the grind who ended up making it. Like, I would like to hear somebody romanticize the grind who gave up after two years and went on to sell insurance or something like that. Like, that's, that's also a big part of this is that if the grind wears you down and sometimes it crushes your spirits. And that, again, shouldn't be necessary to do something that you're good at, you have a passion for, and you want to do. No doubt about it. It can be very crushing, the grind indeed. Um, I want to go to a piece you wrote for us earlier this year about the dearth of LGBTQ broadcasters in sports. Now, obviously, there are an increasing number of out sports writers. We have several of them at out sports. Um, there's a lot of prominent voices from LZ Granderson to Izzy Gutierrez, Christina Carl, of course, for many years, Steve Buckley, who I know you had in your show, uh, on down the line. But when you actually talk about LGBTQ broadcasters, play-by-play people in major sports, 
there's a huge absence uh, in your reporting and, and the story. Why do you think that is? What are some of the reasons for that? Yeah, um, I think the biggest reason that I can think of, and I, I kind of learned it in the course of writing the story, was in talking to John Clement, who is the interview source I used for most of it, who is the play-by-play broadcaster for minor league hockey's Elmira Enforcers. And what he told me, the thing that stuck out most in the interview was that there are, in his attempts to move up the ladder in broadcasting, when he applies to a new job to try to move up like a minor league level or something, there are several instances, he said, where he's thought about applying to a given market and he's really kind of paused and worried like, you know, I am an out gay broadcaster. I do not hide who I am. Like, is this going to be a problem if I got this job in whatever community, minor league community this would be? And I think, and he also went on to say too, that many times he's pleasantly surprised when he goes down for, to be interviewed in these places and finds that they're open and welcoming. But the thing is that the pleasant surprise kind of is the giveaway to me because when just applying for a job as an out LGBTQ person in the sports broadcasting industry kind of makes you hesitant to think, uh, am I going to be able to live as myself and be open and safe in this community? Like, even if it turns out that they're perfectly willing to welcome you on board, just the fact that you're scared, I think, is underlines what the problem is here. Like you, (laughs) again, this is an industry that is tough enough to make it just on your own, just from the job itself. But when you add in, am I going to be concerned about, you know, what life is like living in this minor league community for a year and being accepted by this fan base? Like, I think that would probably hold a lot of people back and uh, not just, open LGBTQ broadcasters, but I would imagine those who are in the closet wondering, is it safe to come out too? Because I'm sure there are plenty of those in the industry. That's a great point. You know, when you talk about the actual path of a broadcaster, it goes through those small markets where you're right, there probably isn't a vibrant gay community and maybe in a more conservative area. And those are hard jobs. You're on the road all the time. You're not being paid anything. Um, you know, to go to our previous conversation, that's, I guess, slightly paid mm-hmm. labor, minor league broadcasting, yeah. but, um, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's not just, Oh, you wake up and you're on ESPN. You have to dog it through, you know, uh, Lubbock, Texas to cover the single A yeah. team or whatever. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, that, that's a great point that I don't think many people consider because when you're talking about broadcasters, again, the path isn't just you're out of college and you get a national gig or a gig in New York or Boston or Chicago. I mean, you, you work your way up and it's hard to do that as an openly LGBTQ person in still a lot of areas of this country, I imagine, especially in, in the sports realm. Right. Yeah. And it's certainly, and it's not just like states like Texas or the South or places like that, but oh, of course, right. there's like a small or medium sized market. Like there are plenty of small Texases in Wisconsin or Minnesota or Iowa. You know, I, I have played the road on many of these. I, I have seen many crowds where I would be hesitant to, to talk really? honestly about myself on stage. So, oh yeah. Like there, there are many like Spring Lake, Michigan to the world where you play this shitty hotel dive bar and you just kind of got to suck it up and survive the gig. So like translating that into broadcasting where you kind of have to stay there then for several months, like half a year at a time, like that's, that's a very tough existence if you want to be yourself and, and to be as 
as true to yourself and to be honest with yourself as possible. It's a tough existence, especially if you don't think that you'll have the backing of your employer, you know, which I can understand. Absolutely. Like, let's say I am the play-by-play voice for a double-A baseball team in whatever town, Wisconsin, and, you know, obviously the play-by-play guy is not supposed to alienate people. So if I'm, if I would be worried, you know, if fans start complaining about me, the team will probably listen and go, okay, we can continue on without, with, with a less controversial play-by-play announcer. You know what I'm saying? Who doesn't drive right. away our, right. our, our fans. So it's, right. I, I, and I think that's a thing too, you know, that also falls on the teams where I'm not sure if these, I don't know what Jonathan said, but if these, if, if they feel supported by these teams and feel like if I did come out and there was backlash that the, my employer would stick by me and say, no, this, that we're sticking by, you know, we're sticking by you. I don't know if that, obviously that feeling isn't out there. Right. Yeah. And Jonathan, to be clear, said that his current gig in Elmira, they completely support right. him. He's, he is out in the office. He, his husband is well known uh, among everybody, all of his coworkers. So that's great. The thing is, like, that has to be the given in the industry in every town in order to make it as safe as possible. And, and honestly, that's, that's the kind of thing that we need as the assumption. Uh, and in order to lead to more LGBTQ, excuse me, LGBTQ voices to be out and proud in the broadcasting industry, I think. We need more of them. That's for sure. It's like the la- yeah. one of the last and, and, frontiers. Right. And, and so this is kind of a self-perpetuating thing, too, because this, this environment and this kind of underlying fear then means that there are only a handful of people who are out and open on any level, which means there aren't a lot of out LGBTQ role models, certainly at the top of the profession, for other broadcasters to say, OK, it is possible for me to make it in this industry as myself because such and such a guy did it like the only one that you can think of off the top of my head is izzy on sideline reports and nba telecasts right 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 and then we cover that all the time at outsports right the power of visibility Mm -hmm. and there is not any visibility when it comes to broadcasters and it's also worth mentioning that jonathan clement who you talked about who you talked with and others you know these are white or you know or just cisgender men so if it's that difficult for a, a white cisgender man you know, just imagine what it is if you're not, you know, so. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, I, I would love, you know, to see, turn on the TV someday and see a, a trans person on a major league telecast somewhere and, and NBA or MLB or something like that. But yeah, I, I can't imagine like the hurdles that they would have to overcome given, uh, given what that presents to to so many people. Yeah, and I think it's this idea that diversity also means LGBTQ. And we see this all the time in society that diversity means race, gender, and it stops at gender identity, sexual orientation. But as we know, that obviously is not true. Um, mm-hmm. I want to also carry on to a piece you wrote a couple weeks ago. For once, let's not allow spring training to obscure baseball's privilege problem. So the Mickey Callaway incident has been very ugly for the sport. Apparently, this was like the worst kept secret ever. This pitching coach constantly harassing women. Nobody seemed to care. Um, it's just, uh, man, Ken, another bad stretch of headlines for Major League Baseball. From Mickey Callaway to Kevin Mather to Francona's comments this week about Callaway, kind of defending, keeping it hush-hush. Just, uh, man, when was baseball... <laughs> I mean, can we be optimistic about where baseball is heading? I mean... Baseball, this this is the most baseball response to a crisis possible because it's the same thing they do 
just about every time that there is a, a, a major crisis in the game is to let's what the the, uh, the powers at the top of the game essentially act like, OK, this has been reported to us. What if we do the minimum and don't say anything and just assume it's going to blow over? And right. it never does. Right. And it's for some reason never occurs to the people who have power in the game or they just don't care that maybe you should try to get out in front of an issue like this and maybe actually try to address the systemic culture at the root of it in order to stop it from happening. Uh, but instead that they're, uh, they seem fine for whatever reason with allowing these brush fires to flare up and then just having to try to put them out and hope that the news cycle moves on as quickly as possible, as opposed to actually solving the problem. It's, I mean, we, we kind of sprinkled throughout this discussion talking about classic this white male privilege. And that is the very heart of that, that they're, these people in power are not going to lose their power because of this. So they'll, you know, they'll try to act like they're doing something when they get called on these problems happening. But they're, they, for many of them, I guess, they decided that there's no real reason to change much of what's going on in the game. And yeah, it's, it's as a baseball fan and as a progressive, it is remarkably frustrating to watch over and over and over again. And you wonder how many Mickey Callaways are out there, not just in baseball, but all of sports. I've, I've been interested that throughout the Me Too movement, spanning a couple years now, we have not seen more of these kinds of stories. The Jared Porters, the Mickey Callaways, because you know they're all over professional yeah. sports, especially male professional sports. Um, so it's interesting to see if maybe the dam is breaking a little bit, at least for baseball. I think the dam is breaking in terms of I, the number of stories that get reported and kind of how a lot of fans react to these stories now that I think a lot of like the Mickey Calloway, it, it's a modern take to me on the stuff that was happening certainly back in the days of like Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin, for example, that uh, in the days, you know, back in the forties and fifties, star players would be kind of lionized once you heard about, you know, that they were, harassing women or, or chasing around like that was considered part of the jock code. And then the culture of whatever happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. And again, because that was a largely white, this male straight dominated society, even more so than today. And I, I guess the hope is that everything surrounding problems like this happening in the modern game I mean, everything surrounding it looks at it and goes, that's awful. You need to stop that. And it's kind of a question of how long does it have to take until that viewpoint becomes a part of the game's culture itself, as opposed to being imposed by the rest of us on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I think overall, baseball is moving in a better direction. I do. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I mean, not having any access to what goes on within the confines of the locker rooms. I, I can't say for sure, but I, I certainly get the impression that um, overall the, the game understands that there's, there's so much more that we can find out about bad behavior now. And, and there are players who speak up like, 
Um, I, I'm going to, I guess, use the example of Domingo Herman, the, the Yankees pitcher who had the domestic violence incident from two years ago, I think. And mm-hmm. like, even without barely being prompted, uh, when he rejoined the team this spring training, Zach Britton, the all-star relief pitcher, made it known that, yeah, he's going to be in this locker room and he's a part of this team. We're not exactly 100% on board with that. Like, that's it's it's a small statement, but right. in baseball terms, the fact that you would break that kind of team-wide omerta that right. kind of is lingers over the game, like that's that's a step. And the fact that players are going to, or some players are willing to publicly take that step, I think is a good thing. Definitely, I, I hope it's a good thing. Definitely a good thing. I mean, as long as it, when it, as soon as it becomes, uh, you know, something that. Uh, you know, your peers frown, frown upon, uh, then I think we start to see changes when it gets disavowed yeah. from the inside. Um, yeah. Ken Schultz. I, I don't want to say, oh, by ahead. the way, I don't want to say that this is like, you know, a, a giant move in the right direction by any means. Like, even even if it's a baseball big step, it's still very much a the old Chris Rock line, hey, you want a cookie? <laughs> and that's somebody who's been more than just slightly paid for his work. We can yeah, say that. Yeah. He, he's doing all right for himself. Uh <laughs> Ken Schultz, you can follow him on Twitter at Ken Schultz underscore. That's correct? Yes, indeed. Okay, Ken Schultz underscore. Read him on Outsports. Ken, always great catching up with you, man. Thanks. It is a pleasure, Alex. All right. Thank you all for tuning in to episode number 56 of the Sports Kiki podcast. Again, thanks go out to Ken Schultz for taking time and coming on the show. Always great to catch up with an Outsports compadre. If you have any uh, guest ideas, topic ideas, I always say it. My DMs are open on Twitter. Against my better judgment, you can find me there, at AlexDreamer1. That, again, is at AlexDreamer1. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you next Saturday.